you're listening to Jimi Hendrix, Crosstown Traffic. And so many of you listening to our American stories right now, well, you may be stuck in traffic. And that's why we're here. Make it a little less painful. And it takes the average worker 26 minutes to travel to work, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And that's the longest it's been since the census began tracking that number back in 1980. Back then, the typical commute was only 21 minutes. The average American commute has gotten nearly 20% longer since then. But people living in Los Angeles, well, they have it the worst. They spend an average of 53.68 minutes stuck in their cars every day. Then in July of 2017, Los Angeles imposed a road diet in the quiet beach community of Playa del Rey, replacing car lanes with bike lanes and parking spaces. The roads were suddenly jammed with traffic. Alexis Garcia at Reason.com brings us this report. If you mess with traffic, you have messed with the DNA of Southern California. I just created gridlock through our town pretty much all hours of the day. It all comes from the same agenda. Get you out of your car. We're in Playa del Rey at the shack, the site of a lot of angry people who live in the neighborhood, upset over the stupid... I even hate this phrase, road diet. Here in this quiet beach community just outside Los Angeles, residents went to war with the city back in July over traffic. It all started when the Los Angeles City Council imposed what it calls a road diet, meaning lanes of traffic were removed in favor of building new bike lanes and adding space for parking. Some locals applauded the changes, I was really pleased to hear that they would be slowing down the traffic through here. But commuters were furious. We only have three roads that connect us from the South Bay to the West Side. So when the city came and they halved the capacity of two of these roads, uh, it really just created havoc for us. John Russo is a local resident who co-founded Keep LA Moving, a community coalition that's fighting back against the city's unilateral decision to reconfigure the streets in a way that's choking the flow of traffic. This was basically done uh, without any community input. Like most of Playa del Rey didn't know this was happening. Uh, it created just huge backup, huge gridlock in the mornings. Like what was a 10 minute drive was turned into a half an hour. So it literally crushed our local businesses. Uh, there was a group of 62 businesses that were surveyed and across the board business was down from to the restaurants to the coffee shop. I mean, even like people you wouldn't expect like the dentist, the dentist lost customers. It's part of a strategy known as Vision Zero, in which the city aims to eliminate all traffic related fatalities by 2025. The thinking is that eliminating car lanes will slow traffic, meaning fewer accidents. The goal is also to incentivize more commuters to bike to work. In order to achieve zero deaths, public officials have been doing some odd things. Baruch Feigenbaum is the Assistant Director of Transportation Policy at the Reason Foundation. Road diets are used as what I would call solutionism, whereas anywhere there is a safety issue, we're going to put in a road diet and uh, it's going to solve the problem. It's not really based on science, and it's not really based on empirical findings. So after the road dice were put in, we actually saw traffic accidents go through the roof. We had an average of 11.6 accidents per year on these roads in Playa del Rey. Uh, we've, gone, we've had 52 accidents in the last four months, so we're over 400% of the yearly average in just four months. Emergency vehicles couldn't get into town. I mean, we have video of ambulances out there on Culver, sirens blazing, just sitting in traffic because no one can pull over anymore. There's no place for the people, the cars to go, to let the response vehicles through. According to 2013 census data, just over 1% of Los Angeles' commuters bike to work. 
67% of commuters drive. You're taking something from a whole bunch of people just to benefit a few people. That's not a good cost-benefit analysis. What better way to force people out of their cars except make traffic so unbearable you don't want to sit in your car anymore? City planners also hope to incentivize residents to move closer to their jobs, or if they do have to commute, to ride the city's public transit system. Los Angeles has the third largest transit network in the country, yet only 10% of commuters use it to get to work. In Los Angeles, a majority of the folks simply cannot get from their home to their job in a short period of time using transit, and it's not an option. And so trying to force people into one type of behavior uh, doesn't tend to work, and it's why even in Los Angeles, the vast majority of people are still commuting by automobile. In October, the Los Angeles City Council reversed itself in Playa del Rey after community members filed two lawsuits against the city and launched a recall election of local councilman Mike Bonin, who had backed the plan. But the city is still planning to implement over 40 road diet projects in other areas of Los Angeles. And Chicago, Minneapolis, New York, and Atlanta are pursuing similar policies. In the 1960s, we were building interstate highways, freeways through downtown areas, which was definitely the wrong approach. Nobody is suggesting we go back to that. But now we seem to be on the total opposite end of the pendulum, where we don't want to build any roads at all. We just want to build bike paths. We want to narrow lanes. We're saying that transit is going to solve everybody's needs. Neither extreme is what we need to do. I just think this is completely wrong. It's not about cyclists versus drivers. These are all of our roads, and they should be safe for all users. Uh, and the road diet didn't make our roads safer, and they're not making it better for the cyclists. And thanks for that report, and that's Alexis Garcia at Reason.com. And by the way, there was a key line in that, forcing people into one kind of behavior. And it's not often that we get into the world of public policy, but when we do... It's stories like this, where a small group starts to dictate how a large group lives because they just feel like it. They don't like cars, or they don't like this or that about the way you're living. And in this great country, we believe that, well, let Berkeley be Berkeley, let Birmingham be Birmingham. There are so many different ways to live, and let the people choose, not some smarty pants sitting in a city council. This is Our American Stories, Road Diets. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love music here on the show and we love history and that's why this is our favorite segment and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. See if you can spot this one. 
This Week in Music History, 1992, Eric Clapton recorded his Unplugged session for MTV. The set, which included his hit single Tears in Heaven and a reworked acoustic version of Layla, earned six Grammy Awards for the album, including Record of the Year. And in 1967, the Beatles began recording A Day in the Life at Abbey Road Studios in London, recording four takes of the new song. According to John Lennon, the inspiration for the first two verses was the death of the 21-year-old heir to the Guinness Fortune, who had crashed his Lotus sports car in London. And in 1977, the Eagles were at number one with Hotel California, the group's third U.S. number one album. In the 2013 documentary History of the Eagles, Don Henley said that the song was about a journey from innocence to experience. And that's it. This same week in music history, 2016, Eagles guitarist Glenn Fry died at the age of 67 in New York City. And in 1996, Jamaican authorities opened fire on Jimmy Buffett's seaplane, mistaking it for a drug trafficker's plane. 
U2's Bono was also on the same plane, or in the same plane. Either way, nobody got hurt, but the incident inspired Buffett to write a song called To Make a Mistake. And in 1982, during an Ozzy Osbourne concert in Des Moines, Iowa, a member of the audience threw a bat onto the stage. Stunned by the light, the bat lay motionless, and thinking it was a rubber fake, the singer picked up and attempted to bite its head off. As he did this, the bat started to flap its wings, and Ozzy soon realized that it wasn't a fake bat, but in fact a living bat. After the show, Ozzy was immediately rushed to the nearest hospital for... Rabies shots. And born this week in music history, 1969, American musician, singer, songwriter, record producer Dave Grohl. He was the longest serving drummer with Nirvana and the frontman and founder of the Foo Fighters. He's also the drummer and co-founder of the rock supergroup Them Crooked Vultures. In 2012, Grohl was estimated to be the third wealthiest drummer in the world behind Ringo Starr and Phil Collins, with a fortune somewhere around $260 million. Here's Dave. I never took lessons to play the drums. I learned how to do it on my bed by listening to Rush records and punk rock. So the first time, I took one drum lesson, and he's like, how do you hold your sticks? Yeah, you know, that's not how you're supposed to hold them. I'm like, okay, I don't have $30 an hour for me to sit there and relearn everything that I've learned. So the same with guitar. I took a couple guitar lessons and then I wound up playing and I play guitar the way I do it. I don't know what any of the chords really are. I just, I know the basic chords. But, if, but the way I look at a guitar is like a drum set. I look at the lower strings like they're kicks and snares, and I look at these like they're cymbals. Also born this week in 1946, Dolly Parton, U.S. singer-songwriter, actress, her 1981 number one single, 9 to 5. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping, out on the streets the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from 9. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy and you let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You would think that I would deserve a fair promotion. is the fourth of 12 children. Her family was so poor that grain was all her father had to give to the doctor who delivered her. She now has a net worth of over $500 million. And in 2006, American soul singer Wilson Pickett 
died in a hospital near his Ashburn, Virginia home of a heart attack at age 64. Pickett recorded the soul classics Mustang Sally and In the Midnight Hour. scored 15 other U.S. Top 40 singles. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with her terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And today on This Day in History, Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809. He died young at the age of 40 and of unknown causes in Baltimore, a town that was my own hometown for many years. By the way, those unknown causes caused many to speculate about Poe's death. Well, it was only at the end of this great writer's life that The Raven got released. That was in 1845. But the publication of that epic poem made Poe an overnight international star. And so we thought to celebrate Poe's life, what better person to turn to and what better poem to turn to than the Raven itself and to Vincent Price. Let's take a listen.
once upon a midnight dreary. While I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Uh, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my book surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels call Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, is some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door? Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door? This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, I said, or oh, madam, surely your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness, peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. And I whispered back, and an echo murmured back, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see what then thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a minute, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter. When with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the stern and grave decorum of the countenance it wore, 
Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the night's Plutonian shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marvel this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on his placid bus, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footballs tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee. By these angels he hath sent thee respite, respite and nepenthe from the memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. Wow. What a story. What a read. The Raven 
by Edgar Allan Poe, the author born in 1809, died 1849. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And of course, that was the great Vincent Price doing that reading. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 19th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. During their winter with the Mandan Indians, the Corps of Discovery experienced their buffalo dance, which is, as it sounds, a dance to improve their luck with the buffalo, most pointedly with killing it. The buffalo medicine dance existed in the Mandan world for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. These were people who were completely dependent upon the buffalo as, as one of the main sources of their existence. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. So the buffalo on the Great Plains was not just a principal supply of protein. It was also the materials from which they built agricultural implements like hoes and rakes. From it, they built their boats, their bull boats, which were willow sticks that were shaped and tied into a kind of a tub-like form and then a buffalo room stretched over it. Uh, they made their uh, much of their clothing from buffalo. Their lodges were built from buffalo skins. Their blankets were built from this. Their way of boiling meat came from buffalo stomachs that they had fused into a kind of a, a, a paunch kettle. They used every bit of the buffalo, and it was a very large portion of Native American diet on the Great Plains. So the buffalo to them wasn't what a cow is to us, it was what a car is to us. It was a gigantic part of the economy and the daily subsistence of Native American peoples. And if you're an Earth Lodge people like the Mandan, you're settled in one place. You send out hunting parties and they might go scores of miles or even hundreds of miles. But basically, you don't follow the herd, you go catch up with the herd or you hope that the herd comes to you. So if you're a Sioux Indian or a Lakota, you just follow the herds wherever they take you. But if you're a Mandan, you want the herds to come to you. So they have this dance, which was designed to maximize the possibility of, of successful buffalo hunting. And the way that it worked was... As far as we know, from William Clark's journal... They would form a dance circle, and young Native American men would come and bring their wives, and their wives would be lightly clothed, maybe just clothed with a robe, but in, in a way that was sexually enticing. A curious custom. And that means there must have been a roaring fire, because this would be in the middle of the winter. This happened in, in January. And then the older men would be sitting in a circle. And smoke a pipe which is handed to them by a young man. 
And these were the master hunters, the ones who had great wisdom about how to find the buffalo herds or who had distinguished themselves for their ability to to hunt. But the, the wise old men would be sitting in a circle, some of them so old as to be decrepit. Who very often can scarcely walk. But the way it worked was that the husband, the younger husband, would go up to one of the old men and invite him or beg him to have sexual intercourse with his wife. The young men go to one of the old men with a whining tone. And the idea was, you know, we use the words carnal knowledge. The idea was that the older man could sexually transmit some of his prowess, some of his hunting mastery, some of his skill set, some of his medicine into the uterus of the, of the bride, of the, of the young man's wife. The girl takes the old man and leads him to a convenient place for the business. She would incorporate, I mean literally, the Latin term incorporate, she would incorporate some of the wisdom of the older man by way of sexual intercourse. And then she would have intercourse with her husband and, and that medicine, that, that mastery would be transmitted sexually from the older man through the woman into the younger man. This might lead to pregnancy, but that wasn't necessarily an important part of it. And then the younger man would gain, in a metaphysical way, some sort of medicine mastery that came through this sexual transmission system. We would say, as people who are scientifically driven, that this is nonsense. But the native people didn't think that it was nonsense at all. And so this went on for a long, long time, and other travelers, including Maximilian, report this dance, and anthropologists have verified that it existed and that it was a very central part of the winter spiritual activity of, of the Mandan people. What, what makes it interesting for us is that Lewis and Clark were invited to attend, which is a little surprising. Remember that Lewis and Clark told the Native peoples to stay away on Christmas, our big medicine day, but the Mandan invited Lewis and Clark's men to participate in their big medicine day. Uh, so there's a little bit of a cultural irony there. And so Lewis and Clark sent, not everybody, but some men to this. And Clark reports that because the white people and York... Clark's black slave. ...were considered to be exotic or to have a kind of a medicine, they were brought into the dance. They were able to have sexual intercourse with some of these young women. Last night, they gave him four girls. And, and this was another way of incorporating some of the mastery that maybe didn't exist in that circle from outside. And from Lewis and Clark's point of view, it was just sexual opportunism. I mean, for them, it was like, what a lucky day, because here are these men who are begging our men to have sex with their wives. It's, it's, it's not only acceptable, but it's, it's culturally privileged. And we're not just permitted to have sex with these women, but we're, we're given special honor for having sex with them. And so you can feel a little bit of almost a fraternity-style amusement in Clark when he writes about this, that it's, a, it's sort of like the, the luckiest day in the, in the course of the winter. They can't possibly understand why this would be so important to the Native peoples, but they're plenty willing to let it happen. But... When I write about this or when I lecture about this, I'm, I'm always very careful to challenge any sort of fraternity smirking or joking about this because this was sacred. 
the buffalo is essential to the lifestyle and the success of the Mandan people. And they believed that everything was spirit, that there is medicine in rocks, there's medicine in clouds, there's medicine in lightning, there's medicine in owls and antelope and mice and buffalo, but that the buffalo was big medicine in a really important way. The buffalo was the great spirit's way of making life good and prosperous and happy for the Mandan people. And they needed to propitiate the buffalo to bring them in and they needed to bring sacraments. We, you know, we have sacraments for the things we consider most important: baptism and confirmation. And they want a visualization of the spiritual importance of something as essential to them as the buffalo. Well, Clay, you're always trying to talk about the sex. I was actually just trying to talk about them eating out of the heads, the buffaloes. Oh, that's another one. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just messing with All you. All that talk, you should have interrupted <laughs> me. But, but the other one is so interesting. Let me just quickly talk about that. So several journal keepers report this. That after they kill the buffalo, uh, they somehow strip the skull, and the skull is, is then put on the ground in a sacred way and uh, pointed in, in to the east. And then the native people would put a small morsel, like a, a little ball of grass, in the mouth of the buffalo skull as a way of showing gratitude for the bounty of that bison herd, but also to, in some sense, feed the spirit of the bison so that the bison would continue to cooperate in this hunting dynamic between the native people and the buffalo and the grass. And so two members of the expedition write about this. Gask says, oh, these um, ignorant Indians, they're so superstitious, look what they've done. I mean, come on. Yeah, you, th you really think that's going to bring back the buffalo? Their superstitious credulity is so great. But White House is more generous and says, well, they do this as a sign of gratitude. Most of them have strange and uncommon ideas, but sensible in their own way. He's not dismissive. He reports it, but, but he, in some sense he seems to get it that Maybe this doesn't make any sense to a scientific mind, but it makes a kind of sense. I love that. I mean, that's why we need all the journal keepers, because we wouldn't want to see this just through the eyes of Clark. We wouldn't want to see this just through the eyes of Lewis or of Gass or of Ordway or of Whitehouse. But when you get them all together, they begin to sort of triangulate, and different people notice slightly different things and talk about the same things in slightly different ways. And the differentiation between several journal keepers on this gratitude gesture is really interesting to me and it shows that some minds are more open than others and some people are more purely curious than others some people are more skeptical and dismissive than others but we need all of of those points of view and you know we think we're so scientific but if i remember hearing a philosopher say if you go to a bowling alley if you took the 10 top philosophers in the world to a bowling alley once they release the ball they're leaning to try to to urge the ball to go in the direction that they wanted. Everyone thinks that you can give English to something that you're doing, or when a, when a basketball player shoots, people lean in to try to encourage the ball to go through the hoop that, that purely rational people do a very wide range of extremely irrational things with respect to the universe, and that that tells us that we should be pretty skeptical of our own skepticism. And another great episode of the most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark series here on Our American Stories. Great job as always, Alex. 
And to hear all that Clay Jenkinson does, go to ClayJenkinson.com. And thank you, Clay, for your terrific storytelling. This is Our American Stories. opening intro, because for the hour we're going to spend, well, a whole lot of time talking about Dolly Parton's life. And that song is my wife's favorite, and so always lead with your wife's favorite song. It's a woman pleading to another woman to please not take her man, and this shows Dolly's vulnerability in the end, and that's what we loved about her, lyrically, as a singer, as a human being. And so for the hour we're going to talk about this great star, and this remarkable American story, because it is a uniquely American story, Dolly's. And joining us for the hour is Sam Haskell, who knows a thing or two about Dolly, helped bring The Coat of Many Colors to air on NBC this past winter in December, and it was one heck of a hit for NBC. You'd think to those TV executives, maybe America would want more of this wholesome, remarkable programming, and Sam helps bring this to the world. He's responsible for The Cosby Show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Everybody Loves Raymond, Lost, The King of Queens, and more when he was the worldwide head of TV for William Morris Agency. And he lives here in Oxford, and we broadcast from this little town of Oxford, Mississippi. And Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lee. It's great to be here. Oh, you bet. Sam, what we're going to be doing today is just ripping through Dolly's life from beginning to end, because my goodness, I know a lot about music. And until you study a person, you just don't know a person. And uh, But I wanted to ask you quickly, uh, you said that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, brought you, in a sense, in a weird sense, to Dolly. Talk about that. Well, you know, that that verse is a very important one to me because uh, I learned that at the knee of my mother when I was a little boy. And perseverance is a very, very important part of any of us who are on a journey, and especially someone like Dolly Parton. And everyone told her she couldn't, and that made her persevere and want to do it all the more. She had certain encouragement when she was a little girl from her teachers and her mother, who thought she was very special and called her her little songbird. And Dolly always felt like she was going to be a star. And um, when those told her she could not do it, she told them, oh, yes, I can, and just watch. And when she left the Porter Wagner show um, in her late 20s, after being there from the time she was 19... So it's been almost 50 years ago that she went on the Porter Wagner show. She just knew I had to do it on my own and I don't want to be dependent on anyone else. And I've got this talent and I've written hundreds and hundreds of songs. And today it's thousands and thousands of songs. She wanted to go and prove to the world that she could do it by herself. And so she did. She did in Perseverance. There it is. And we're going to learn a little bit about Dolly's core character. Here's a clip of Dolly talking to Dan Rather in a remarkable interview she did a few years ago about her parents. My dad was like that. My dad raised 12 children. My daddy could not read nor write. Never had a chance to go to school. But my daddy was so smart. You know, he was just, I've just always wondered what all my daddy, 
might have been able to do had he had an education. But I, my daddy, I watched him maneuver. I watched how he would, he could trade and barter, and you know, it's like he would. Well, they call it good horse sense or horse trading. They call it street smarts if you're from the city, but good old country horse sense. My daddy was so smart, and I just watched him through the years. And my daddy was also one of those people that was really willing to work. He was up all the time, up early, having to farm before he went to work on construction or doing whatever he had to do to, to keep food on the table. But he always just managed to make some of the best deals and some of the best choices and I I was very influenced by that now I got my music from my mother's side of the family and most musical people musicians don't want to work at anything else so I got my work ethic from my dad I got my music from my mama and I tried in the early days when when uh, when I would think about it and I started seeing that I could make money at this I thought well they do call this the music business so why don't I kind of lay a little heavy on the business side of things? So I got to thinking, you know, uh, what I should do to make it really profitable, not just to sing and just let the money roll in and let it be gone before you think about it. So I started thinking about uh, keeping my publishing to myself, you know, publishing my own song, starting my own publishing company, and just different things like that. You know, different things like that. Let me tell you, and you know this, Sam, so few artists, especially in country music, write their own music. Even to this day, it's all about the songwriter getting matched up with the singer. But women owning their own publishing. We also talked, by the way, about Sam Cooke and the fact that he owned his own publishing and Irving Berlin, who owned his own publishing. But talk about, if you could, share with us one business dealer, one insight you can share about Dolly's business acumen. My goodness, we know about her music. But my goodness, what a sharp business dealer. Talk about that. When Dolly left the Porter Wagner show, Porter was not happy. And uh, Dolly had to make a deal to get out of that deal. And one of the songs that she wrote at that time was to Porter. And it was a song called I Will Always Love You. And at the time she recorded it, uh, Porter got to record it and put it on one of his albums. But Dolly held on to the publishing. She would not give that to Porter. So she ended up giving Porter money so that she could get out of that deal. And she kept the publishing to I Will Always Love You. Within a year of it being released, Colonel Tom Parker came to Dolly and said, Elvis wants to record I Will Always Love You. And she thought to herself, oh, my gosh, I'll get all that money back that I had to pay Porter. This is going to be huge. But Elvis wanted the publishing. And she said, well, I'm not going to do that. And Colonel Tom said, little girl, Elvis does not record anything that he doesn't have the publishing on. And she said, well, he can't have it if he has to have the publishing. And I'm sure there were expletives shared and Colonel Tom went crazy on her. But she held her ground. 25 years later, Kevin Costner was starring in a movie with Whitney Houston called The Bodyguard. And I Will Always Love You made Dolly Parton millions and millions and millions through the publishing that she had held on to when Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley wanted that song. Now, that's a great not only business story, but that takes the kind of courage that Sylvester Stallone evoked when he didn't sell his Rocky script, The Chaz Palminteri showed when he didn't sell the Bronx Tale without him having his name up there with a, a little guy named Robert De Niro. When we come back, more with Sam Haskell on the life of Dolly Parton, a uniquely American life. More after this. This is Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib. Watch the kids playing 
with June bugs on a string And chase the glowing fireflies when evening shadows fall In my Tennessee mountain home Life is as peaceful as a baby's side Bittersweet memories That's all I am taking with me Goodbye Please don't cry We both know I'm not what you You need I will always love you I will always love This is Lee Habib, and for the hour, Dolly Parton's work. What we did is a little mashup there, because what's so great about art is an African-American gospel singer born in the church in Newark, New Jersey, picks up on this girl who grew up in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, a song, and takes that song, and, well, the whole world hears it. And we learn from Sam Haskell, our guest, who knows Dolly Parton very well, about her universal talent. And Sam is the worldwide head of television for the William Morris Agency and knows a lot about Dolly because he was in charge of NBC's Dolly Parton biopic, Coat of Many Colors. And Sam, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. And I'm the former worldwide head of television former, right. for the William Morris Agency. You bet. Yeah, they'd like to. They... <laughs> I, I, I left there 10 years ago to uh, play more golf and lose 20 pounds. And uh, I haven't managed to do either because... Warner Brothers grabbed me up and said, we want you to come produce television for us, and we want you to uh, build a sandbox and invite your friends in to play. And the first friend I invited in to play was Dolly Parton. Well, that's a beautiful thing for us and for NBC, by the way. In December, they pulled some pretty sweet ratings and I'm sure made a nice toddy profit. And that's always important to Dolly. We're going to get to that a little bit later. It was very important to her that people on an end of a deal made money. And Dolly made lots of folks money in addition to making a whole lot of people happy. Sam, perhaps more than anything else, Dolly was a big dreamer. And ever since she was a young girl, she'd been a dreamer. And one of the tough things when you're a dreamer coming from a small town is leaving that small town. Because some people are going to think, what, do you think you're better than us? Do you resent us? Of course, we learn later that Dolly not only didn't resent where she was from, she paid homage to it. But let's hear from Dolly about that dreaming. Now, the night I graduated from Sevier County High School back in 1964... We were all asked to stand up and talk about what we were going to do with the rest of our lives, and everybody had a different story. And when it came my time, I stood right up there and said, I'm going to Nashville, and I'm going to be a star. Well, the whole place laughed out loud. And I was so embarrassed because I thought, well, how odd? Why is everybody laughing? Because that's what I'm going to do. But as bad as I felt at that moment and as embarrassed as I was, it did not shake me from my dream. So I guess I showed them, huh? (laughs) And you can do the same. Aspirational always, but without looking down on where she was from. You know, Sam, you were from a small town here in Mississippi. And so in some deep respects, 
you too had these kind of aspirations, and I'm sure you too dealt with the same kind of strange and odd looks when you told young people and old people alike what your dreams were. Talk about how you and Dolly had this deep, deep root sort of small town feeling in common. Well, I grew up in Amory, and I think I probably was the only person in Amory who had a subscription to Photoplay magazine. And it would come into the Main Street drugstore every Monday. And I would run down and get my magazine. And I'd also buy a TV guide. And I'd walk down the street and tell everyone what was going to be on television that night. My favorite show at the time was Bonanza. And I used to go to the Ponderosa every Sunday night with my brothers. And we'd watch Little Joe and Hoss and Adam and Ben Cartwright. I knew who was up for the Oscars. I knew who was nominated for the Grammys. 1964, the Beatles, you know, won Best Newcomer of the Year. Uh, Hello, Dolly was the best Broadway show. My Fair Lady won the Oscar for Best Picture. And Donna Axum from Arkansas had won Miss America. And I knew all of this and more because I read Photoplay Magazine. Yep. And I'm sure when I walked down the street and told everyone when I grew up I'm moving to Hollywood, they would just shake their heads and go, bless his heart. Yep. You know. Yep. But my mother would look at them and say, you know, you never know what this boy might do. You yep. never know. And so you got your belief from her. Where did Dolly get her belief in herself? I think she got it from her mother, and I think she got it from her teachers, and I think she got it from her friends. Uh, you know, when you grow up in a household with 12 children, you're sort of fighting for attention. And uh, as the kids grew older, they were responsible for the younger ones because their mom and dad could not really take care of them all. So... As the kids grew older, they took care of their younger siblings. And I think that Dolly probably got most of her encouragement from her mom and then outside the home from friends and, and teachers. And when she says she graduated from high school, I think she was one of the first in her family to do that. She was the fourth child of 12, and um, she was very proud of the fact that she did, but she knew what she wanted. And you go back to that Bible verse we talked about earlier. She knew what the word perseverance meant, and she was going to persevere, and she was going to make her dreams into reality. There's no doubt, and indeed she did. And we're talking with Sam Haskell, who, uh, along with Dolly and her efforts, brought Dolly's childhood life to bear in a coat of many colors for NBC in December, and again, to big ratings and hopefully much more to come, and it, it seems there will be, and we'll talk about that in a bit, Sam. Uh, what we'd also like to bring you is another clip from Dolly. You know, she had this sort of, and I think people always felt this watching, a sort of an internal piece about herself that comes from her belief at the end of the day that people, will, well, they'll like you for being yourself. And authenticity is just something she understood long before there was Facebook and long before there was a, quote, authenticity movement. Let's hear from Dolly on her core. I like to think of myself, you know, as a, as a giving person a caring person, a fun-loving person. Uh, I love to work. I love to be happy. Nobody's always happy. But I, I wake up every morning. If, if things are not right, I try to set about trying to make them right. I'm a very spiritual person. So I really think, I know I'm a phony-looking person, but I know I, I'm, I look artificial, but I'd like to believe that I'm totally real where it really counts. Because I was not a natural beauty, so of course I'm going to overdo it and try to, you know, create my own little look. And so I'm just a, I'm just a country girl that wanted to do good and thank God 
and because of God, I have done good, and I'm grateful. You know, there's so much there to unpack, Sam, when you really, I mean, if you're a psychologist, I mean, the self-deprecation, it's real. Uh, The honesty, straight to the heart. Her view of herself, she sees herself from the outside clearly as we do. And then God, it's always, she understands that God thing deeply, and it'll ne- you can never push her off that. And talk about that, that core that you, I think, were drawn to and we're all drawn to, and you, your personal experience with that core. Well, I've loved Dolly Parton most of my life. I remember watching the Porter Wagner show with my parents and watching her pull those towels out of those boxes of breeze, <laughs> yep. you know, detergent. And uh, when I finally got to meet her, it was just like, a dream come true because she represented everything that I felt I represented, which was having dreams and wanting to make those dreams reality and reaching for the stars and always trying. I I never stopped trying and Dolly never stopped trying. And she was just this inspiration to me. So in finally meeting her in Hollywood, I remember it was at a rehearsal for the Golden Globe Awards in 1982 and I was a young agent at William Morris, and she had been nominated for Best Song for 9 to 5, and she was there to, to rehearse it. And I had put that show together and had brought the host together and the producers, and I got to meet her. And the minute she found out I was from Mississippi, she said, sit down, I want to talk to you. And we talked for about 30 minutes and sort of struck up a friendship. And I didn't see her again for about five years, but when that five years had passed, it was time for me to interview with her to represent her. And she remembered that day. And I think she trusted where I was from, trusted my heart, trusted my spirit, knew that I was a Christian man, and we bonded. And we had a great business relationship in addition to our friendship. Well, that's beautiful. When we come back, more with Sam Haskell, more with Dolly Parton. In her own words, we are pulling this from many different interviews, and importantly, and most importantly, more of Dolly's music. More after this, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you can catch all of this storytelling, particularly the Irving Berlin piece will interest you too. We did that about a month ago, and again, what a uniquely American story. A Russian comes here and writes God Bless America, and a Jew writes White Christmas. And, well, only in America do these things happen. More after this. A box of rags someone gave us And how my mama put those rags to use Now there were rags of many colors But every piece was small And I didn't have a coat And it was way down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together Sewing every piece with love She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of Why mama sewed She told a story from the Bible she had read About a coat of many colors Joseph wore And then she said, I hope this coat will bring you Good luck and happiness And I just couldn't wait to wear it Let's give her a great big welcome As she sings a song that she had a big hit on Called Dumb Blonde She ain't no dumb blonde though Pretty Miss Dolly Parton How about This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And you're listening to Dolly Parton on her first night on the Portner Wagner Show. She was singing her hit song for the first time in front of a large national television audience. I'm being joined by Sam Haskell. And Sam was the former worldwide head of television for William Morris Agency and brought us all kinds of big TV hits. But we're here talking to him tonight because he brought a TV hit to NBC this December, The Coat of Many Colors. We'll be talking to him in the next segment about that. Now we just wanted to dig a little deeper into Dolly's life. And we wanted to talk about relationships. Because in the end, it's a really big thing still in Dolly's life. And it always was. And indeed, it is in Sam Haskell's life. Let's hear Dolly on the importance of relationships in her life. But yes, I've, like I say, I've had a relationship with everybody I've ever worked with, whether that's male or female. I'm not talking about sexual affairs. Right. I'm talking about I get involved with people. But that's one of the things that I love because I'm a songwriter. I want to know about people because I love people. I am just a people-loving person. And I, I just find something fascinating about everything. I try to find the God core in everybody. I try to play to that and find the God light in everyone. We all have it. But I just love getting to know personalities and what makes people tick. Well, Sam, you're her agent. And you've brought this TV show to the screen. What makes her tick? Well, first of all, I was her agent back in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And um, after I left William Morris in 2005, a little over 10 years ago, um, I just became her friend. And That's at, even better. And after we made the deal at Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. um, I became her producer. So I have, I've got three hats that I wear. Interesting. And, um, and by the way, what's the di- you know, t- just briefly, what's the difference between those hats with a person, the difference between the producer hat and the agent hat? Well, the agent secures the jobs, and I worked for almost 30 years at the William Morris Agency, you know, half the time there running the worldwide television division. And I packaged shows and made deals and secured employment for some of the biggest stars in the business. Then it gets turned over to the producer to make the concept, to hire the writers, to find the production designers and the director and the cast to put everything together that the agent has just negotiated. In this particular case of The Code of Many Colors, because I was such a prolific agent, I was able to work with the studio in negotiating all the deals and putting it all together, packaging it, and then producing the television movie. So I sort of wore all three hats, and then the friendship hat was important because Dolly needed me to protect her story, to protect her family, to to make this something they would all be proud of. And I was determined to make it perfect. Well, and indeed, you know, we uh, spent some time yesterday, Sam, on the life of Martin Luther King. And we were doing some research and digging into some of his great speeches, including why Jesus called a man a fool. And we were trying to find the actual passages to play in an audio form on our show, and they'd been redacted everywhere. And we were having trouble finding it in the media because too often the mainstream media doesn't like to hit actual Martin Luther King's religious impulse. And uh, it was fascinating. So it's interesting that ultimately these people's lives do need to be cultivated by people who care about them because in the end, well, ugly things can happen. Talk about that responsibility uh, of curating in a sense because in the end you're really her curator at that point aren't you sam well of course you are and you have to have the ability 
I love that word relationships. You have to have the ability to take your relationships and make them very personal or they're really not going to work to their fullest extent. And I agree with Dolly when she says I get involved with people personally. I do too. And that's why she and I were such a perfect match. And that's why this partnership that we've put together to produce these movies for NBC is so perfect. We finish each other's sentences. We know each other. We know everything about each other's families. And it becomes paramount to a successful relationship that there is that understanding of who each person really is, who they are, who they want to be, and how they maintain who that person is. And uh, Dolly and I do a good job maintaining who we are, and it makes us great friends and great partners. This deal at NBC came together exactly a year ago, and we, we met with the president of NBC, Bob Greenblatt, who was a friend to both of us. And um, I had thought that I would probably, once Dolly and I decided what we wanted to do, I thought I would probably sell these movies to Hallmark because they were much more of a family orientation. But I wanted to try one step higher. And I thought if we could get them on a commercial network and we can find someone who will believe in what we believe in and give us a shot to touch some lives, that the reach would be far greater on a commercial network than on a cable network. Yep. And he agreed to let us do four movies based on four of her hit songs as long as Code of Many Colors would be the first one we did. And Dolly and I had already agreed that we wanted to make Code of Many Colors one of the four. And we just looked at each other, winked and smiled. And 10 months later, we were on the air with Code of Many Colors. And it was the highest rated television movie on a major network in the past seven years. 16 million people watched it. In this day and time, that's a lot. That's the, big. The only thing that beat us was the NFL. Yep. And uh, that, that is, that's the kind of number every network wants. And my goodness, every cable executive would want. You know, Sam, we did a, uh, we did not, not long ago, we did a little retrospective on a Charlie Brown's Christmas. And it turned out the, the, the executives didn't think the show was going to go anywhere. In fact, they didn't like some of the things in the, in the piece. They didn't like the, they didn't like that there was no laugh track. They didn't like Vince Garaldi's soundtrack. They didn't like the Luke scene. And they were basically writing it off and it ended up getting 50%, 50% of all TVs watch this. You were in Hollywood a very long time. Is there a predisposition to thinking that stuff like this is too hokey? Or that stuff like this won't sell? Why don't we see more stuff like this on the majors, let alone the minors? I think that it's cyclical. And I think that these darker shows, these shows like NCIS and CSI and Law and Order SVU, and, you know, these shows are dark and they're about murder and rape and incest. And for whatever reason, the audience is watching, but I believe that there needs to be a light among those dark shows. And I believe that sometimes we need to bring faith in, we need to bring family in, we need to bring inspiration in. And my pitch to the president of NBC was, in this day and time, we need something for people to hold on to, not just something for people to be entertained by and that dark world where we've got new shows coming out about Satan and exorcists and vampires. Yep. And, you know, we need some kind of light shown on what is real and we need light on faith. 
And one of the great compliments that I got from the president of NBC is that, you know, you have to walk a fine line sometimes when you talk about faith because there are those in today's world who don't really embrace it. Yep. You know, I, I've noticed that a lot of young people have a lot more questions about God than I did when I was a teenager. But I believe if you can show it in the right way and you can do it without being on a soapbox preaching and forcing it into people's, you know, daily routines that, it makes them ask the right kind of questions. And I have gotten hundreds of emails since our movie aired with parents telling me that their children are asking them about heaven and asking them about God and much stronger than they ask when they come out of Sunday school. No doubt. And that's what we try to achieve here, Sam, on a radio program. We did an hour on John Wooden. People didn't know that faith animated this coach. They didn't know that faith animated Jackie Robinson. They didn't know that faith is inspiring Steph Curry. To be the man he is on the court. He's not slapping his wife in an elevator. And we need to make these connections without a hammer in our hand. Tell the story. Get out of the way. Let God do the rest. This is Lee Habib. We're talking about Dolly Parton for the hour with Sam Haskell, who, well, he knows a whole lot about movies, TV, entertainment. And he brought Coat of Many Colors, the NBC Dolly Parton biopic, to big ratings. And in the end, that's what... That's what Hollywood most respects, Nielsen's. And if we can deliver that, my goodness, we've got them. More after this. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Don Henley and Dolly Parton singing When I Stop Dreaming. And on this day in history, Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton was born in 1946. She never stopped dreaming. And for the hour, we're going to talk about Dolly. You know, I just saw the movie The Judge. If you haven't seen it, see it, rent it. Robert Duvall plays an old judge, the father of Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Duvall raised his son in a small town. His son ended up hating that small town, running away. But a family crisis brought him back home, and he, well, he fell back in love with that small town. Dolly Parton never had that problem. She was proud of where she was from, always, to the end. And yet she never hesitated to try new things and to go to the big city and to Hollywood, but again, never apologizing for her Smoky Mountain roots. And joining us to talk about Dolly for the hour is a man who knows a lot about Dolly, he helped produce and bring to television her two movies, Coat of Many Colors and Christmas of Many Colors. He's the former worldwide head of television at William Morris. And my goodness, he brought a lot of TV to America. Cosby, Everybody Loves Raymond, King of Queens, Lost, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Sam Haskell, thanks so much for joining it's us. It's a pleasure, Lee. You bet. Well, I want to take everybody to a unique, a unique night in American history, and I want to set it up for you because I watched it last night. And, and it moved me. A good friend of mine who works on the Kennedy Center's production staffs, I, I told him what we were doing. He knows the arts like nobody. And he goes, Lee, you've got to spend some time on this unbelievable night. In the booth that night, being awarded, awarded the Kennedy Center Award, which is the highest achievement for an artist in this country, were the following people. It was Andrew Lloyd Webber. It was Smokey Robinson. Then sitting... Next to Dolly Parton, on the left was Steven Spielberg, and to the right was Zubin Mehta, the great conductor from Israel. And guess who steals the show 
Well, listen to Reese Witherspoon's introduction, and you'll need no answer. Here's Reese introducing her hero, Dolly Parton. Like a lot of little girls growing up in the South, I grew up loving Dolly Parton. Every Sunday night, I'd stay up and watch her variety show with my mother, mouthing all the words to every single one of her songs. (laughs) So I guess you could say, I didn't just love Dolly. I wanted to be Dolly. Literally. I mean, come on. She was blonde. I was blonde. She's from Tennessee. I'm from Tennessee. She has this amazing figure. I'm from Tennessee. (laughs) This dignified, spiritual, and very caring woman also happens to be a real hoot. Her laugh is just infectious. Have you ever heard of Dollyism? Reese, I don't get offended by dumb blonde jokes because I know I'm not dumb. And I know that I'm definitely not blonde. (laughs) And my personal favorite, you know, sweetie, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. Zubaneda is clapping and laughing the hardest, folks. What attracts me most to Dolly is that she's never forgotten where she came from. She's the keeper of the Smoky Mountain traditions and of bluegrass music, and one that takes great pleasure in seeing its spoken and musical traditions passed down from one generation to the next. As I think about it, there's really only one way for me to say exactly how I feel about you, Dolly Parton. I, too, will always love you. And that was from the heart, you know it. And uh, Sam, just that that ability to let someone younger than you tell those jokes and allow the whole place to laugh at you, but laugh with you too. Talk about that talent and that spirit. That's what Dolly's about. She she loves sharing her heart. I've been asked so many times, what do you think created such a success? And I believe that that Dolly gave her heart and her talent to her fans and people all over the world. You know, she's a worldwide icon. She's not just an American icon. She's a worldwide icon. So she gave her heart and her talent to all these people, and their gift to her was her success. That's so true. And I believe that to my core, and that success has been shared. You know, when I was growing up, my mother would say to me and my brothers, you know, guys, a blessing's not a blessing unless it's shared. So whatever blessings you have, you go out and share them. Dolly Parton believes the same thing. Her imagination library puts books in the hands of kids all over the United States, kids that would not have an opportunity to even own a book. Dolly Parton puts one in their hands. Millions and millions and millions of dollars she gives back every year to the charities that she supports. She practices what she preaches and she's real, and God has blessed her for that. Indeed, as he blesses all of us if we obey and we're generous, and generosity flows from that obedience in the end. I wanted to play a cut from that remarkable night at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., because what Dolly gave to us in her songwriting is what I think all great artists do, and it's a piece of themselves. They share with themselves and others a part of themselves that most of us would be afraid to share. And by doing that, as Arthur Miller had said when Tennessee Williams died and he gave the oration, he said, Tennessee made us feel all less alone. 
And I think in the end, that's what Dolly does. Listen to Alison Krauss sing a song. Well, the song we led this hour off with. And again, my wife's favorite. It happened to be Alison Krauss's too. Take a listen to what Alison Krauss sang to her really great friend and person she really admired, Dolly Parton. Jolene, 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 Jolene. I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. Jolene, 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 Jolene. Please don't take him just because you can. There are few people who can sing the American songbook, and particularly... The mountain music, the roots music for this country. And again, go back to our Robert Plant segment, if you can. About three months ago, Plant discovered his, himself with the blues tradition first in his 20s of American music in the Delta, and then rediscovered himself in 2007 and eight, well, coming to terms with the great roots tradition in Nashville and beyond with Alison Krauss. Sam, I wanted to play a, a clip at you, and I think you'll know the voice. We talked about a very big reason you think Coat of Many Colors was successful and about a very big star you involved, you involved in your production team. And let's play that clip. It's you. Religion has been a very important part of my life and Dolly's. And we have prayed over this project. And we prayed over the casting. And I really feel like God had a hand in bringing us Jennifer Nettles and Ricky Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder was my client when he was eight years old at the William Morris Agency. I, I was there for almost 30 years, and he was my client when he did The Champ with John Voigt. And Gerald McCraney, who plays the grandfather, has been my friend for 35 years. We graduated from Ole Miss together uh, back in the day in Oxford, Mississippi. So I feel like there are blessings surrounding this entire project. Can you wow. elaborate on that, Sam? It's, wow. it's so deep. It's, it's so few people in public life will say these words. For the life of me, I don't know why. Bear Bryant, we found out in our hour celebration of him, the guy who wrote the book on him, Pat Williams, said his greatest regret was not telling the world he was a Christian. And he wished he had. Well, why are you not afraid, Sam? And why <laughs> is not Dolly afraid? Well, we're not afraid because we're real. And, um, you know, I think that that God honors that. And I think that most people honor that, whether they are Christian or not. They honor the fact that you're real and that you you state what your heart tells you to state. I did so many interviews about this movie. I don't know where you found that one, but um, I appreciate that you went to the effort to find it. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll share with you is I was doing a lecture um, for the CMA at the uh, Grand Ole Opry about 15 years ago. And that's the Country Music Association. Country Music Association. Yep. And they wanted to, me to do a lecture on the state of the television business. And all these country people, stars, recording artists, actors, producers, were all in the audience, about 800 people. And I had done about a, I guess, a 45-minute lecture, and I always enjoy doing question and answers after. And um, someone asked me where I find my strength. And I said, well, I find my strength in God. I'm a Christian man. I, I also find my strength in my wife, Mary, and um, through my friends. But God, number one. And I heard this <laughs> going through the room. And it, and it didn't sound very friendly. Right. And um, I thought... Good grief. These are my people. <laughs> Why are they reacting so negatively to yeah. my saying that I'm a Christian man? And at the end of the lecture, 
a line that went all the way around the auditorium, lined up people coming to tell me how much they appreciated that I said in public that I was a Christian. And they were just all reacting in shock that I actually you did had it, said that it. You said Not it. negatively that I'd said it, but thrilled that I said it, but shocked. Right. Well, that's Sam Haskell. <laughs> and we're celebrating the life of Dolly Parton, born on this day in 1946. And we're going to go out in this segment with her final words at a graduation speech at the University of Tennessee back in 2009. And again, this is Our American Stories, the life of Dolly Parton, born on this day in history. I still have dreams of what I want to do next. And of course, I hope that I will never retire. I will never go to seed. And as they say, I would certainly rather wear out than to rust out. And I just hope that I drop dead right on stage one of these days. <laughs> doing exactly what I want to do. And I want people to just walk all around me and say, Oh, look at her. She's smiling. She looks so happy. But I hope it don't happen today. 